0: This talk was given by Vanessa Zuisei Goddard-Sensei. Zuisei-Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisei.org. Thanks for listening. Who will teach me to live, a student wanted to know, The page of life, the page, that eternal blankness, the blankness of eternity which you cover slowly, affirming time scroll as a right and your daring as a necessity. The page which you cover woodenly, ruining it, but asserting your freedom and power to act, acknowledging that you ruin everything you touch, but touching it nevertheless, because acting is better than being here in mere opacity the page which you cover slowly with a crabbed thread of your gut, the page in the purity of its possibilities, the page of your death against which you pit such flawed excellences as you can muster with all your life's strength, the page which is your life will teach you to live. (coughs) This is a quote from Annie Dillard from The Writing Life. And she's speaking of writing, um, but of course it's not a big stretch to speak about living in this way. So I just adjusted the quote ever so slightly. Who will teach me to live, a student wanted to know. And I wonder what we hear when we uh, hear that the answer is you. You yourself will teach yourself how to live. Now, I wonder what we hear because you know, we're in a tradition that says that ignorance is ubiquitous. It's a condition that none of us can escape from, although we can be liberated from it. And these two are not the same. We can't escape from it because we have consciousness. We have human consciousness. So how can I teach myself how to live when I can't trust myself or I don't know what to trust? That's why I came here, right? So I could study with a teacher, so she or he could point the way. And this is true, and it is necessary, but it cannot work unless we are most willing to learn from ourselves. Because even you know, the most enlightened teacher can't tell you, can't tell any of us how to live. And if they do, or they try to, Run for your life, because that's not the teacher that you want. Only each one of us, affirming time, scroll as our right and our daring to scribble away as the ultimate necessity. We're the only ones who can do this work. We're the only ones who can learn from our own expression. And yet, it's never in, in isolation. So every time we set down a mark... We affect everything. We affect the whole world. And so, actually, you know, saying that you teach yourself how to live is the same as saying that everything teaches you how to live. Every creature and everything teaches me, teaches you how to live. And I was, I was thinking yesterday, because we did a, a half-day sit, that uh, I feel that these half-day sits are, are the, the hidden pearl, kind of the unsung treasure, uh, because not that many students come to them. Um, and I, I wonder why. And I understand, you know, part of it is, of course, you have very busy lives. And and when you come to an intensive, you want to see a teacher. I, I understand. But, you know, there's something that happens with these uh, little chunks, little pearls of, of time uh, that is so silent, because there is nothing else. You don't have to present anything. There's really very little to do other than that service in the middle of the morning. And there's no bells, you know, there's, there's no no movement, people getting up, getting online. And so you spend, you know, more or less four hours in a, in a kind of, of silence and stillness that is... Uh, I find incredibly healing and a, and a depth. You know, I, I find a, a, a groundedness and a depth. You know that that you can get to in these half-day sits. That you know, even sesshin is hard. You know, saying to someone, it's ironic. I come to the city to be silent, to be quiet, because at the monastery it can be so busy. And if you're part of the staff, you're doing sesshin, and there's so much to do. There's always. There's certainly always something to take care of and, and people to speak to. And so it's hard, in fact, to, to truly become silent. So these half-day sits is like having a, a little mini hermitage, like a little retreat where you truly have a chance to, to be with yourself um, in, in, a, in a whole different way. So just to throw that out there. Dadaroshi used to quote uh, someone, I couldn't remember who, saying that art brings into existence something that didn't exist before. So it's it's an act of creation, of course. But that is true of life. Your life, my life, brings into existence something that didn't exist before. And we can produce an ode, or we can produce pulp fiction. And where does the difference lie between one and the other? And I'm not talking about talent. I'm not talking about success or or failure. Because every living person that has lived has failed and failed repeatedly. Every so-called successful person has failed more than they've succeeded. Maybe they just stuck with it a little bit longer and it paid off. But that's only if we think of it in terms of loss and gain of payoff and debit, I guess. And um, I I was speaking with a a student about success and, and how we have a very, very particular image of success in our culture. And it reminded me of a, of a talk, a TED talk, it's actually a very well-known talk by Sir Ken Robertson who's speaking about ed- education and creativity. And he was speaking about how kids are being educated out of creativity because our, our range for success is in you know, mathematics and sciences, certainly economics. And... You have, after that, maybe you have languages at the bottom of that, the humanities, and at the very bottom, art. And he was um, grieving, really, uh, that we're basically teaching children to stop thinking and to stop taking chances, because you're certainly if you're working in a company, making a mistake is penalized. So we learn that you shouldn't take risks unless it's, it's a very calculated risk. And he was telling the story of his son, who did a nativity play. And um, there's the, the scene where the three kings, the three magi, are coming to offer their gifts to Jesus. Their gifts of gold and myrrh and frankincense. And he says, one of the, the first little boy, and they're you know, maybe five years old, something like that, and one of them is coming forward and says, I offer you gold. And the second one comes forward, I offer you myrrh. And the third one comes forward and stands there you know, very proudly and very confidently says, Frank brought these. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, You know, a child doesn't worry about whether they'll succeed or fail, they just go for it. They don't remember in that moment, you just do it. You know, say what you think is, is right. And how very quickly we learn that that's not okay. In fact, that probably happened to that kid. You know, somebody probably said, did you notice you made a mistake if other people were laughing? You learned right away, oh, that's not okay, that's not right. And, and Sir so Robertson is saying, you know, if you're not willing to make a mistake, you'll never be original. You'll never really create, really. And so it just made me think of, uh, in this, this piece by, by Annie Dillard, you know, what about those who refuse to measure, and to be measured. What about those who say, I may ruin the page, but I would rather do so than remain in opacity. I would rather do so than half live. And, and take this ruining with a with a grain of salt because we so often take it literally. We, we judge ourselves, so yes, I do ruin everything that I touch. And Diller is saying, you know, You may have this great vision, and then the moment you set it down on the page, on the canvas, it doesn't look at all like we thought it would, which is, of course, the artist's plight, their struggle. But that's just like life, isn't it? And she's saying, go ahead and ruin it. Go ahead and exert your freedom to act. Take a chance, because not taking it is not living. And really, really, ruining the page is just an idea. It's not the actual experience. That boy was just doing his thing. You know, he was just in the play. He was saying his line. It's in the moment after where we decide this was good, this was bad. This is success. This is failure. And remember that our practice is one of intimacy, one of, of closeness, not just with who or what we like, but with Everything. And being close, you can't be false. You can't be wrong. You actually can't be true either. You can't be right either. As I said, that's the moment after. The moment in which we um, harvest the fruit of our action, if you will. And and so it's important to... to really understand what we mean by this intimacy or this closeness because we are, in fact, so, so quick to judge or because we're so quick to um, turn it into what we want. You know, I'll be close with what I like or with whom I like. And to, to really enter an experience a moment in which you're fully present with your breath. There is no way to know whether you're doing good or bad Zazen that is there is just breath sitting on that seat filling the, certainly there's room in the whole universe really and, and somebody said to me you know it's like kind of when, you, when we say you know it's my life and I don't know what to do with my life and they were saying well but it's just life it's just life I happen to be the one who's in this this stream, you know it's just life and it's happening And are we there or not? Now, truthfulness is the seventh paramita, after patience and before determination. And truthfulness as a virtue has the characteristic of non-deceptiveness of speech. And its function is to verify in accordance with fact. So, it's not just expressing, it's not just stating the facts, but it's actually verifying them through our words. So, first I verify through my experience, and then I express. I match my words to the facts. So, being truthful is being harmonious. And it, uh, truthfulness is, is taken quite seriously as a paramita because. It's several of the, of the texts say, you know, someone who is, who is willing to say a lie, tell a lie, will not hesitate to transgress, will not hesitate to, to commit evil. And they actually use those words. So it's seen as, as uh, a big deal. And it's said that the manifestation of truthfulness is excellence, and honesty is its proximate cause. In the Ten Grave Precepts, the fourth grave precept is to manifest truth, to not lie. And in his commentary to this precept, uh, Master Dogen says, The Dharma wheel unceasingly turns, and there is neither excess nor lack. Sweet dew fills the universe. The Dharma wheel unceasingly turns, proclaiming the truth. And we understand the Dharma, of course, as the teachings of the Buddha, the words of the Buddha, But the Dharma is also truth itself, things as they are. So the Dharma wheel was actually turning long before Shakyamuni Buddha appeared in the world. And it will continue to turn long after Buddhism disappears from the face of the earth. But if that's true, how is it possible to lie? Is it possible? It is. It is. Of course it is, and it would be dangerous to think the contrary. But it's also true that there is neither excess nor lack, and that sweet dew, which is perfection, a symbol for perfection, that it fills the universe. But until that's true for every being and everything, it's not true. We will perceive a lack and will act accordingly. This is the world that we live in. This is the world that we've lived in for a long time. It's a world of, of very much of lack, of fear. A world in which at times it is, seems safer to speak falsehood or to not speak at all. And also, you know, how important it is, this this um, matching, you know, of, of our words and our experience and how... It can also go the other way. The experience can match the facts, the, the words. And I was thinking this morning, the, the liturgy, you know, what we're doing when we're, we're creating this liturgy together every Sunday morning and every day, those of us who practice here regularly, we're inviting, we're inviting every Buddha, every Bodhisattva, every enlightened being that ever lived, that ever will live and however we understand that word, live, into this room. And in one way, this is uh, formality. They They don't actually need to be invited. They're already here. But it's a way of reminding ourselves that all of these beings, all of these beings included, are here and are turning, we are turning our minds toward truthfulness and toward harmony and toward clarity. And so, you know, if you, if you know you're going to be late in the morning, don't not come. But try, you know, really do try to be here on time and, and to be here for the beginning of the service and to be here for the service, because you, your body, your mind, your words are shaping quite concretely that reality. And without you, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And so when we kind of just stream in casually as the service happens, I mean, it still happens. We still do the service, and there is something still happening. But it's different. It's different. So remember that liturgy is you're you're turning all of your being, your words, your thoughts, and your actions, in a particular direction to create uh, a Buddha field, as Shugan-sensei often says. So when it doesn't feel that way, when it doesn't feel safe to speak, what is that? And, and, and what, is, uh, what happens to a person who doesn't speak? And I, and I found again you know, an article that appeared in the Mountain Record recently by Audrey Lorde, and she says, uh, the transformation of silence into language and action is an act of self-revelation, and that always seems fraught with danger. But my daughter, when I told her of our topic and my difficulty with it, with it said, tell them about how you've never really a whole person if you remain silent, because there's always that one piece inside of you that wants to be spoken out. And if you keep ignoring it, it gets madder and madder and hotter and hotter. And if you don't speak it out one day, it will just up and punch you in the mouth from the inside. <laughs> I don't know how old her daughter was when she said this. So, in speaking, we do reveal ourselves. And of course, it feels dangerous. But the silence of suppression is dangerous too. You know, we practice uh, um, a very deliberate silence. But as I said to those of you who were doing beginning instruction, it shouldn't be of suppression at all. This is silence that can be affirming, that can be healing, even life-giving. And it was what I was referring to with these half-day sits. And you know, for those of you for whom that that peace inside of us is maybe not so forward, so aggressive, uh, it might not punch you from the inside, but it just, it curls up into a ball, and it gets tighter and tighter and smaller and smaller, retreating into a silence that is not spacious. It's confining. It's repressive. It's harmful. And it makes it that much harder to speak the next time you have to speak. So she says, we can sit in our corners, mute forever, while our sisters and ourselves are wasted while our children are distorted and destroyed, while our earth is poisoned, we can sit in our safe corners mute as bottles, and we will still be no less afraid. And to me that is the key. Is not that we're afraid to speak, is that we're afraid. Period. And we may ruin that page. We may, in fact, lose our life. But she's saying Guess what? You're going to lose your life anyway at some point. So why would you let that fear stop you? We chant when we do nenju, which is a short service that we do at the end of session usually or at the end of a, a special teaching by a teacher, by the abbot really. Um, and it's a service of appreciation. And one of the mm-hmm. beginning lines says... Um, When this day has passed, our days of life will be decreased by one. In the evening gatha, we say time swiftly passes by and opportunity is lost. And we chant that every night. That's what we end the day with. Essentially saying, don't take this day for granted. Don't let it get lost in the shuffle of your life. It's not worth that. You're not worth that. You're worth so much more than that. And, you know, Dillard um, says also in a a, a different passage, she says, you know, if you're going to write, write as if you were dying and write for an audience of terminal patients because that's, in fact, our condition. And she asks, you know, what would we create? What would we say if we truly knew we were dying? In this moment, we're dying. And this isn't morbid you know, or, or pessimistic. It is verifying in accordance with fact. What would we do? What circumstances would we change? What would we not tolerate if we felt in our bones the urgency of our dwindling days? So speaking truth requires a commitment, certainly. Certainly a commitment to not just take the easy route, the comfortable route. I mean, have you ever spent a a period of zazen just fuming, going over uh, a slight, an insult, a difficult conversation that you had where somebody really hurt you, and you, you spend half an hour or an hour and a half if you do two periods, just going over exactly what you're going to say to this person, how you're going to put them in their place. And then the period ends, and you go home, perhaps, and you have the chance to face this person, and you think, oh, it wasn't so bad at all. After all, you know, I I don't really need to say anything. I should just let it go. I mean, this is my practice. I should just let it go. And I would be fine if we actually let it go, except... Nine times out of 10, we don't. So now we're stuck. We haven't spoken, and we haven't let it go. And so we just churn and spin and seethe. And then when we get tired, what we felt originally just goes underground. And Lord's daughter is saying, but you know, it's still there. And sooner or later, it's going to punch you in the mouth. And this is true in a small scale. And it's true in a large scale. So it's true in intimate relationships, when you're speaking to your partner, you're speaking to your child, you're speaking to your parents, or you're speaking to the government, to members of an oppressive ruling class, right? So so it's true individually, and it's true as a, in a collective at a collective level. And yet, when we're speaking, it's just one person, one moment, perhaps. One truth. So in one moment, I'm choosing how to speak and to whom. I'm choosing whether to speak at all. And my mother used to say, you know, you can say anything. You can say anything if you know the right way to say it. And she was absolutely right. I I have found that to be true. You can say something, things that are quite difficult to say, in fact... But if you know the right way to say it, if you find a skillful way, you will be heard. The other person might not like it. They may not agree with you. But that's actually not the point. And sometimes speaking truth is not agreeable, endearing to others, the Buddha actually said. You know, he said you have to choose the, the proper time to speak what is true, what is factual, what is beneficial, and what may or may not be Endearing and beneficial and um, agreeable to others, but of course that's where the fear comes from. You know, they may not like me; they may hurt me. And it's and it is true. And there are situations where that is very real. It's very true. But remember, ultimately, each one of us has to live with the the scribbles that we've made on that page or the ones that we chose not to put down. And remember that that manifestation of truth is excellence, and honesty is its proximate cause. Dillard says that the page is the thing against which you pit such flawed excellences as you can muster with all your life's strength. I, I really like that, those flawed excellences. Because we are flawed, but we are also excellent, as in perfect and complete, lacking nothing. How often we hear this. How much do we believe it? And so we muster our courage and our strength to make a mark on the page because we must. Because we cannot, after all, make no mark. That, that is impossible. And I remember that, that story, it's been attributed to Gandhi, and it's not actually known if it, if it, is, if it was him or not, but um, that uh, a mother came to him and said, you know, my son keeps eating a lot of sugar, and I'm really worried for his health, but I think if you tell him to stop, because he really admires you, I think he might. And so Gandhi just thought about it for a moment and said, well, come back in a week and bring your son. So she went away came back, brought the son, brought him in front of, of um, Gandhi. And Gandhi just looked him, at him and said, you really shouldn't eat so much sugar. It's not good for you. And the, the boy just looked at him and said, OK, OK, if you say so, I, I won't. And then he walked away. And the mother was like, well, you could have said that to him a week ago. Why didn't you, why did you make us come back? And Gandhi said to her, because last week I was eating a lot of sugar. Myself. (laughs) And we would want to believe that he never ate sugar, perhaps after that, you know, that that his integrity was such that it was, um, that he didn't fall. But maybe he did. And wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be in accord with his flawed excellence? I mean, I've had people ask me. Not that I'm comparing myself to Gandhi uh, at all, but I've had people ask me, well, you know, after meditating for 20, 22 years, do you still get angry? Of course. (laughs) Of course I still get angry, and they get relieved. They're visibly relieved, you know, when I say that. Um, Of course. Of course. You know, I'm not an automaton, and I wouldn't want to be. Um, I do my best to practice my anger, my distraction, my selfishness. That's the whole point. It's not arriving at some state where I will never fall. That's not life. I mean, that's fantasy. And so truthfulness also implies communication. We actually we have to communicate with one another. You know, sometimes the channels just cross, right? And how, how ironic that that can happen more with people that you're very close Because I think we take, we assume so much. You know, when I say X, she says Y, and she means Z, because that's what she's always meant. When I say X and she says Y, this is what she means. And, I mean, I go through this with my partner all the time. And 15 minutes into the conversation, we look at each other like, why are we arguing? We're actually agreeing. We're not even listening to each other anymore. You know? And and how striking it is that after 15 years... This still happens and how much we fill in the blanks. We feel we know this other person. And in that moment, it stops. She stops being alive. She stops being a person. The moment stops being alive. The page, you had marked it already. All this, this, you had filled it with scribbles before you even began. So it, it implies a commitment to true... Expression and to wholehearted listening, to really be willing to be present for sometimes things that we do not want to hear, or just you know what, what we don't know. In in that uh, in that TED talk, um, Sir Robertson was saying that there's a, a girl, a six year old girl, who never paid attention in school, and um, Her teacher, it was art class, they were doing drawing. And for the first time, she was perked up, she was completely there. And so she was doing a drawing, and so the teacher approached her and said, what are you drawing? And the girl said, well, I'm I'm making a drawing about God. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the six-year-old said, they will in a minute. (laughs) See, that's confidence. That's confidence. That's not hesitating, not holding back. (laughs) Not deceived about the true nature of phenomena, a student performs the functions of all the requisites of enlightenment and completes the practice of the Bodhisattva path. This is the commentary on the Paramitas. And so truthfulness... And all the paramitas, all the virtues, are based on right perception, the right view of phenomena. That is why you're verifying your words to the facts. But you have to really see the facts. And you can't see the facts while you're in the way. That's, that's the catch. That this is the only instrument that we have. So the information has to go through the filters. That's the only way that it can come in and through And yet, is it possible to get out of your own way enough to actually be able to see what is in front of you? So we tell ourselves all sorts of stories about who we are and what our life is, and we have to. I mean, we're communicating animals. We're we're language-based animals. But practice is allowing us to to very closely look at those stories so that we wouldn't become their victims. A, psychoan- uh, a, um, a psychoanalyst once said to me, you know, psychoanalysis is replacing a, a faulty story with a healthy one. Buddhism is showing you you don't need a story at all. It's getting rid of the story altogether. And by that, you know, really what it means is that you're not letting that story define you limit you because we still use stories you know, in order to understand ourselves so to look at a story for what it is and to let it show you to let those pages show you how to live and this is what we will this is what we do and this is what we will continue to do we're beginning Ango today our 90 day training intensive it's doing they're doing the Ango opening right now in fact they're probably just finished at the monastery, you know, where, where traditionally practitioners would come together to practice. That would always say in caves, you know, in the monsoon season. I think it was really just in groves. Uh, a, a wealthy patron would give the Buddha a grove in which they would gather and practice intensely, more intensely together because they were all there for 90 days rather than wandering. And we do the same, in a way, in our own way. And we're saying, we want to know how to live. This is the most important thing. We want to know how to live with ourselves, with each other, with this great earth. That will be the theme of the Ango. And Shugen Sensei spoke about it this morning in the talk that he gave, so please do listen to it. It will be online, especially those of you who are doing ango, because that will be the, the core, the heart, of what we will be turning our attention to these 90 days. Of course, how to live with one another, but how to live with, as he said, our great mother, this earth. And so far, we don't have a very good record. And so we're, we're looking at how do we, as a sangha, as practitioners... Uh, treading the Buddha way, the awakened way, how do we live in harmony? And so, you know, even if you're not participating in Ango, consider doing everything that you can to to live peacefully, because Ango means peaceful dwelling. How can you dwell peacefully with yourself, with those close to you, with those far away, and, and with our world, with this earth. So let me leave you with Annie Dillard again to, to end. And, and once again, I changed her, her words, but slightly. Push it. Examine all things intensely and relentlessly. Probe and search each object in a piece of your life. Do not leave it. Do not course over it as if it were understood, but instead follow it down until you see it in the mystery of its own specificity and strength. Admire the world for never ending on you, as you would admire an opponent without taking your eyes from them or walking away. One of the few things I know about living is this. Spend it, shoot it, play it, lose it all, right away, every time. Do not hoard what seems good for a later place in your life for another life. Give it. Give it all and give it now. Something more will arise for later. Something better. These things fill from behind, from beneath, like well water. And similarly, the impulse to keep to yourself what you have learned is not only shameful, it is destructive. Anything you do not give freely and abundantly becomes lost to you. You open your safe And find ashes. After Michelangelo died, someone found in his studio a piece of paper on which he had written a note to his apprentice in the handwriting of his old age Draw, Antonio. Draw, Antonio, draw and do not waste time. For more talks, to get information about Zuisei Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessaswiseigoddard.org.